0: From roughly 1346 to 1353, Europe was paralyzed by the most fatal pandemic in recorded human history, the bubonic plague. This disease was caused by a deadly bacteria that lived inside the black rat. It infects a part of the immune system called the lymphatic system. It's believed to have been transmitted to humans by infected fleas that were feeding on infected rats. The disease also took the form of a pneumonic plague, which infected a person's lungs and was easily spread through the air. There was also septicemic plague, which infected a person's blood. If you got the plague in any of these three forms, your chances of survival were slim. The plague killed more than 60% of the total population in Eurasia. One city that was hit especially hard was Florence, Italy. In just the first four months of the pandemic, their population was reduced by almost 80%, and the city spiraled into chaos. People began to fear one another. They abandoned their families and friends and locked themselves inside. Funeral practices stopped. No one was working. It was a complete collapse of society. This is the backdrop of Giovanni Boccaccio's Decameron, a collection of short novellas completed in 1353, just as the plague was ending.
1: If there's an ethic that one can extract from Boccaccio's Decameron, I think it revolves around uh, Boccaccio's vision of what storytelling does for human beings, and how ultimately necessary it is um, in the grounding of human relations.
0: Boccaccio recognized the important role storytelling played in human life, and he offered a new take on the age-old tradition.
1: His uh, prose, what he did to the Italian prose, uh, became a model for Italian literary history in prose for you know to this to this day, you could say. And what his. Uh, What he did to the short story, he didn't invent the genre of the short story, but in a sense you could say that he's the inventor of the modern version of the short story.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Robert Pogue Harrison to discuss Giovanni Boccaccio's Decameron. Boccaccio was born in Florence, Italy in 1313 and spent his early life between Florence and Naples.
1: And he lived through the bubonic plague in Florence and lost his father, he lost his stepmother, he lost a number of his friends. And he witnessed firsthand the ravages of the plague. And a year or two subsequent to its um, its recession, he wrote this Cameron, which has as its frame the plague 1348. And it begins with, in the introduction, with a rather long description, clinical description of the symptoms, of the sort of um, uh, reactions that people had, the different medical theories about what was causing it, and all these various remedies that were proposed, all of them ending up being feckless. And he evokes this complete collapse of his um, society, where all the institutions and even the religious um, uh, protocols and so forth just give way to a a kind of social anarchy, as it were.
0: There are ten narrators in the Decameron, ten young people living in Florence at this time. They, too, have seen the horrors of the plague and have lost family members to it.
1: And uh, they decide that they need to respond in order to save their own psychic uh, well-being to the situation. And they decide to take a two-week sojourn in the surrounding mountains of Florence, in beautiful garden settings with villas. And for two weeks, they engage in merrymaking, song, dance, but above all, storytelling.
0: They end up in an abandoned villa in the town of Fiesole
1: members of the brigade very deliberately go to the margins of Florence in order to reconstitute in an almost ideal form the forms of conviviality uh, and um, neighborliness and and social ordering that would, in their case, maximize the two-week sojourn in order to... um, give them what I would call an immune response. This is not just a psychological immune response to the plague, but a uh, social and even quasi-political immune response. It's actually uh, a co-immune response because it's a community response to the collapse of community in the city. And one of the primary immune responses is storytelling that Boccaccio presents as having a very therapeutic um, and society-reconstructing power of it.
0: While they're out in the countryside, they decide to entertain themselves by telling each other stories.
1: So the Decameron presents itself as the 100 stories that this brigade of seven young women and three young men would tell over the course of 10 days. That's what decameron means. Boccaccio gets it from the Greek, decameron. And over the course of 10 days, each of the storytellers narrates one story a day for a total of 100.
0: So let's go a little bit more into the stories themselves. What are these stories like?
1: Well, this every day is, has a theme, with the exception of the first day. And keep in mind that there are these 10 members of the brigade. They take turns being the king or queen of each day. And it's the king or queen who decides the, th- the basic theme. Stories with a happy ending of love or unhappy or, or, or moments of generosity and so forth. It's a, a great variety of stories. And it's difficult when you have a 100 stories uh, that are not only about different topics, but seem to convey uh, different visions of what virtue is and what vice is. It's very hard to subsume the Decameron under uh, one story. What Boccaccio... Does by putting all these stories in sequential order is that he's always shifting the perspective on reality and thereby reminding us that there is no one privileged view of what the real is or should be.
0: By giving each storyteller equal power, Boccaccio levels the playing field. He isn't claiming that any one perspective is better than any other, there is no one true perspective. This idea of shifting perspectives was commonly represented in medieval times through the theme of fortune. In ancient and medieval Europe, many people believed in a goddess called Fortuna, or Lady Fortune. She had a large wheel of fortune, similar to the kind of wheels used in watermills. The different locations on the wheel represented different states of being, and a person would move around the wheel throughout their life.
1: Fortune blindfolded is the one when she turns her wheel and... the the people on the top of the wheel of fortune with their wealth, eventually, you know, with time, everything will circulate in a way that um, shows that you have your, your perspective, where you stand on the wheel of fortune is always a question of perspective. And Boccaccio is through his Decameron, he's kind of turning that wheel of fortune through the various stories that uh, make up the hundred stories and uh, show us what it's like to be, an aristocrat in one case, and, you know, a servant in the other, a, a woman versus a man, so
0: yeah. Boccaccio also uses this perspective-shifting technique as a way to comment on the various religions of his time.
1: And he does it with a very clever story of a father who, uh, you know, leaves a ring for the... Favored son, and that that ring gets reproduced in perfect simulation. So each of the three sons has a ring that they say this is the real one, and the others are sim- simulacra. And but there is no objective way of establishing which is the authentic and which is the copied. And this is how Boccaccio provides a kind of allegory for for the. Um, the Abrahamic, I say the Hebrew, the Christian and the Muslim religions in order to um, yeah leave things open for plurality without having to um, make that gesture of um, finding one single truth that must prevail over all the
0: other truths. In other words, there might not be a single truth even in religion. But even if there is, stories won't necessarily communicate it. Storytellers might spin the story in whatever way suits their agenda. This is what Boccaccio's first story is about.
1: The first story of the Decameron is interesting because it, it's about the, the worst scoundrel who ever lived. Ceparello and he he gets misnamed, Ciappelletto. On his deathbed, he engages in a false confession to a priest, and he presents himself as the most virtuous person who had ever lived. And upon his death, the priest goes and gives a sermon and and, uh, chastises his his people for saying, oh, look at how holy this man has been. And the rumor starts spreading that Chapaleta was a saint, and everyone rushes to get relics and things of that sort. And this is the first story of the Decameron where Boccaccio is warning us about the dangers also of storytelling, because uh, you can end up sanctifying, you know, the most vile individual, morally vile individual who had ever lived, because we don't understand. And and he said, God will know who, uh, who deserves his rewards and who doesn't, but here in our human world, we are within the perspective of the sublunar, world of appearances where we can never be completely sure uh, what is true and what is not true. and storytelling has a way of also promoting falsehoods that we buy into. And we know that uh, in our in our own day and age that if um, you you know ideology often takes the form of stories. And each ideology has to tell, a, a ma- has a master narrative that um, does the work of persuasion. No? So Boccaccio, I, I, I'm I particularly fond of that story, let's say, more for doctrinal reasons, in the sense that it's Boccaccio warning us. Okay, I'm you're in for a hundred stories, but let me warn you that storytelling uh, is not always an innocent activity.
0: Storytelling isn't always an innocent activity, but it is necessary. And being necessary, it is important to be good at it. He stresses the importance of this skill in a story told on day six.
1: The first story of that day is a story about a knight. They're they're out um, on a pick, kind of countryside um, excursion. And on the way home, there one knight tells the other lady, even though they're on foot, look, can I take you riding on my uh, horse? Let me tell you a story that will... Uh, uh, put you on a horseback. Anyway, he makes such a mess of his story and can't get the sequence right and always saying, oh, i dad. The lady starts perspiring and is suffering through the bad storytelling and then through a little witticism telling him that, uh, sir, you know, your horse uh, jerks and uh, and please, you know, do me the, the favor of putting me down from the horse.
0: The knight quickly gets the message and abandons
1: the story. This guy is a bad storyteller, and it's it's a moral ver- flaw of his virtue. So storytelling becomes a uh, you know a, a kind of social virtue. In day six, there's a truly humanistic vision at work in, in uh, Boccaccio's um, Decameron, where he's always has his eye on how the important thing in life is not so much to save the soul of your fellow man, but how can how can we help each other get through the day? How can we add to the pleasure rather than the misery of life in the everyday modes? And conviviality, generosity, gratitude, the virtues of uh, the, the proper use of language, all these things are, are, are kind of m- the more modest humanistic virtues of, of Boccaccio.
0: Boccaccio lived during the early years of the European Renaissance, when humanism and humanistic virtues were gaining popularity, especially in Italy. If you had to sum up or define Italian humanism or humanism in general, what did it mean to the people at the time who were developing this way of thinking? Why did they choose the word humanist or, you know, what did it come from?
1: Well, humanitas was, uh, belongs originally to the sphere of education. It was a certain kind of humanistic education of a, l, what we would call arts and letters. What we even speak about, the liberal, the liberal arts, is really what humanitas uh, referred to originally. And so it was a curriculum.
0: Part of the Renaissance humanism movement was reviving the study of classical antiquity. Before the Renaissance, the church held most of the power, and the primary form of education was scholasticism. Scholasticism incorporated the supernatural and was built on spiritual faith. Humanism emphasized human achievement and reasoning. The idea behind humanism was to create an educated citizenry that could engage in civic life.
1: The Italian tradition of humanism begins largely in Florence with this so-called civic humanism, which was more of a political view of humanism as a form of government that in which the people or the citizens had sovereignty rather than a king
0: or the prince. This was very different from the other city-states in Italy at the time. Typically, a city-state was ruled by an authoritarian prince. The prince had almost all the power, and the citizens had very little. In Boccaccio's time, Florence was ruled by a council made up of nine men. The council was re-elected every two months, and its members were chosen at random. This system of self-governance was a point of pride for Florentines, both real and fictional.
1: The Decameron has 10 members of the brigade. They take turns being king and queen. No one is the king and queen for longer than a day. It enacts in an allegorical way, the the values of the civic humanism of Florence
0: for sure. So civic humanism, which sounds more like a republic form of government requires capable citizens who can make choices together. And therefore, you need really good public communication skills, presumably to give speeches in front of you know councils and and members of the of the community.
1: You have to know how to persuade your fellow citizens of the opinion or political policy that you're that you're proposing, and eloquence flourishes in these moments of uh, Republican-based forms of government. And that was certainly the case also in Florence, where rhetoric or eloquence was exalted as primarily, first and foremost, a political virtue. No, how can I persuade my fellow citizens? Boccaccio belongs clearly in that in that uh, civic humanism, and in addition to which, he, he belongs to a different kind of social or what I would call civil humanism, rather than civic humanism, which is the problem of human relations with my neighbor and the enhancement of those relations.
0: This was humanism on the personal
1: level. Boccaccio's humanism is not the triumphalist humanism of the Renaissance, which took human beings to be the authors of their own destiny and the great heroic enterprises of um, of uh, the anthropocentric view. He had a more a humanism of humility, where the human condition is intrinsically fragile it's vulnerable it is uh, it, to be human largely means to be in need of help and he says that in the very in the preface to the decameron which begins with the word umana umana cosa è aver compassione degli afflitti it is a human thing to have compassion for those uh, who are afflicted in moments of distress. The other way in which the Decameron is humanistic is, and is a human comedy is, again, as we've said, it focuses on our human limitations, of what we can know and what kind of truth we can have access to. But his the heroes and heroines of the Decameron tend to be people who are not the passive victims of circumstance and of the abuse of others, but who are find a way to act, to act in situations that are uh, highly uh, determined where the, the right act at the right moment, the opportune moment, can lead to consequences very different than had you not acted or had not acted in the, in the right way. And therefore, they are uh, heroes of, of a certain kind of humanistic uh, call to action,
0: Now, the challenge of the ancients is that it's an authority different than, equal to, or maybe sometimes superior to the church. So could you tell us a little bit more about what what does the Decameron say about the church? What's its approach to the Catholic clergy, to Catholic life? I mean, a lot of it seems extremely satirical and, you know, not particularly respectful um, of Christian teaching and leadership.
1: Oh, no, it's it's absolutely... uh a mockery of the the institutional corruption of the church. I think the second story of the Decameron is about a Christian who's trying to persuade his good friend Abraham, who is Jewish, to convert to
0: Christianity in order to save his soul. Abraham decides to indulge his friend and travels to Rome, the headquarters of the Roman Catholic Church, to get a better understanding of the religion. But once he arrives, he sees the pope, bishops and cardinals acting in disgraceful ways.
1: Much to the friend's uh, astonishment, the uh, Jewish Abraham decides to convert to Christianity because he says, if, you know, the representatives of God can be, you know, this sinful, then there must be a higher truth to it because this religion has managed to thrive despite the fact that it has the worst kinds of uh, 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 of representatives in it. So he just took that as as an indication that it would be a good investment, you know, to uh, convert to
0: Christianity. Other ways that this text is modern, I, I'm curious about parts of it. Do seem to me proto-feminist. Um, the fact that there's seven female narrators compared to three. The fact that there seem to be stories that talk about how brilliant and amazing women are and how capable they are. Could, could you speak to this aspect of Boccaccio's thought? Most of
1: the heroines in the Decameron are really remarkable kind of proto-feminist figures who um, show that they are in every respect equal to their male counterparts. Uh, they have the intelligence, the discernment, uh, use of language. And let's not forget that the Decameron is dedicated to women because of Boccaccio's understanding that most of the women in, in his day and age lived within the confinement of their own rooms because they were subjected to the will of their fathers, brothers, and husbands. And they needed, they needed the consolation of literature because they did not have the male privilege to go out and pursue entertainments that distracted them from their own dread. So th- there's an egg, a kind of celebration of, of femininity. But then when you get into the stories, you find that uh, the women are, in every respect, the equals if, and in, in some respects, you know, the superiors of their male counterparts.
0: Is it fair to think of the Decameron I don't know, as, as the first modern book? I mean, is it kind of, does it usher in a new modern perspective that we still see in our societies today?
1: I think that's a, that's a very fair characterization. This book has had an enormous uh, s- sort of reception in the West.
0: Because of the plague and the earlier Crusades, there was a shift in the Italian economy. When Boccaccio was writing, Italy was moving from a farming-based economy, with feudal lords and an underclass of farmers, to a trade-based economy, with a new class of merchants. These merchants made their money selling food and supplies around the Mediterranean. The merchants were able to grab more power and influence than the farmers ever could. As a result, they rose in the ranks in society, sitting just below the noble class.
1: How many of the stories have to do with merchants? A great number of them. You also have stories about the aristocratic class, but mostly we're talking here about the new mercantile reality of uh, the Naples that Boccaccio spent time in and also Florence, obviously. So here it's like a mercantile epic for a new modern era, which Boccaccio understood is going to be dominated by money rather than, you know, power or where, Money is now becoming the new currency of
0: power. This marked a shift from the power of the nobility to the power of the self-made merchant. Boccaccio often depicted the heroes in his stories as having similar qualities to these new merchants.
1: Thus, many of the heroes are part of a middle class, an entrepreneurial middle class, and oftentimes their actions uh, have an entrepreneurial aspect to them that the merchants clearly responded to very positively at the time.
0: And how how was he received and read over the centuries? He's less
1: celebrated now and maybe even in the 20th century than he ought to be. The Decameron, not only as a whole, but many of its individual stories have gone through many different iterations and rewriting and retellings.
0: Over the years, there have been many adaptations of stories in the Decameron. It impacted some of the most canonical European writers, including William Shakespeare and Geoffrey Chaucer.
1: He has had an enormous literary influence um, across the ages that has rarely had the big ups and downs of people who come into fashion and out of fashion. Our time is ripe for a uh, revalorization. of of the real greatness of this masterpiece.
0: Boccaccio recognized how timeless and important stories are for society. They give us new perspectives on life and offer up lessons to help us deal with our complex worlds. Where would we
1: be without stories? If you think of any human society, uh, it's storytelling is, is the real foundation of the social and communal identity of different cultures. It's the way in which values, uh, the founding values of a community are also um, reaffirmed and and dramatized. The conflicts that arise invariably in human relations uh, find expression uh, in stories. And therefore, what at first glance might seem like a light entertainment activity on the part of the brigade to go and tell stories to each other for 10 days uh, actually has a very serious ethical component to it that uh, I personally very much appreciate in Boccaccio's uh, vision of what can we do in order to enhance enhance the relations we have with one another uh, and the role that our use of language uh, plays in this enhancement.
0: Yeah, it makes me think about how the plague, it cuts off human life, um, literally because of the bodies dying and decaying. But also without social life, you can't have a true human life without the exchanges, without the expression. Um, And you can see that I think even in our own time, like, we are hungering for that same kind of connection with other people, um, and it feels like a kind of death to be socially isolated from one another.
1: The absolute fundamental human need to reconnect in in uh, uh, socially with one's fellow citizens is, is, is as important a need as as even any biological medical need we have. And uh, Boccaccio is well aware of that.
0: Rit Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petschy. We're a member of Lithub Radio. Rit Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.